I find I seldom have space to move beyond what's in front of me, my world, my family, my issues. Yet there's so much need in our world. It's good to step out. It's good to tune our heart and attention to the plight of others. It's good to pray. It's good to hear the stories and sometimes, sometimes the best thing we can do is just be a friend. Today we're back with Cindy Wu, talking about the single greatest humanitarian crisis of our day. Cindy's written a new book. It's titled A Better Country, Embracing the Refugee in Our Midst. It's very practical and thoughtful, and I'm so honored to have her back. My name is Nathan Foster, and welcome to the Renovari Weekly Podcast. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Nathan. It's good that we get to chat again. Yes. Hey, could you help help us figure out how big of a humanitarian crisis are refugees today? Right. So the refugee crisis currently is the greatest um, humanitarian issue of our day. It, we have the most refugees um, since World War II. And um, currently, we have over 65 million people who are considered displaced. Among those 65 million people, um, 22 of them are refugees. So by refugees, we mean the technical definition of someone who is fleeing due to persecution and someone who is outside his or her country of origin. Okay. So, twenty? did you say 23 million fleeing? Yes, 22, 23 million people who are outside of their country of origin. And the 65, that then is people are displaced, but they're still in their country of origin? So, the 65 includes refugees, and the 65 is people who are asylees, meaning people who have entered into another country um, and are seeking protection from that country. It also includes internally displaced persons, so people who are still within their borders, and then refugees who are people outside of their country of origin. Okay. So, essentially, we're looking at 65 million people who, by, by no choice of their own, they're fleeing for safety, for survival? Is right. that an accurate way to think of it? Yes. Help us work with that number. 65 million. What, what does that look like? Okay, so 65 million people is roughly the entire populations of California and Texas. So you take some of the largest states in the United States and just imagine if all those people were on the run. Mm-hmm. It's huge. And the, historically, then, we're looking at World War II numbers. That's right. Mm-hmm. In fact, surpassing World War II numbers now. So, and that was what was considered at that time was the largest mass displacement in history. Mm-hmm. And so now it's just that shock value again. Why? Why is it so bad today? And why are we so ignorant of it? So there are definitely a lot of causes for the refugee crisis. Um, you know, really war, violence is the supreme cause of refugee displacement. So, um, first of all, you know, the population obviously has grown since World War II. So, the sheer sizes of the populations, but also just um, just conflict around the world has been um, displacing people. 
I think, you know, we live in a very mobile time. So, um, to a certain degree, refugees have resources to leave in ways that they didn't in the past. You know, if some of these same situations were happening, maybe, you know, 50, 70 years ago, probably a lot more people would have perished in their home countries. But we have mobility and we were able to leave, um, which helps people escape violence, but at the same time, at the same time, produces more displacement. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's, you know, violence, conflict is a major cause of the refugee crisis, but on an even broader, more general level, if you look at, um, environmental disasters, um, climate refugees who under the United Nations definition of what a political refugee is, you know, they don't qualify for the same protections by the United Nations as someone who's fleeing due to persecution. But um, even factors such as environmental, you know, factors are also another cause of mass displacement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Now, now you've, you've put together a new book and, mm-hmm. and this is a, your, your first book is a little more academic. This is a more kind of accessible. Would that be that sounds like I'm being critical of an academic book. No, not at all. I, um, I think Todd Johnson, with whom I co-authored the first book, we would both readily admit that Our Global Families is not the most accessible book um, ever written. But um, yeah, Our Global Families really was targeting a more academic audience. Um, you know, we tried to make the book appealing to a popular audience, but it was definitely, you know, very academic, but our, a better country is meant to be more accessible. It's shorter in length. Um, Each chapter is pretty brief. There's only six chapters or lessons um, followed by a personal action plan and a lot of space in the text for personal reflection. Mm -hmm. So yes, the intent is to be very accessible by a broad swath of Christians. Mm -hmm. Could I mean it, it's something that would work really well with small groups or in a class setting, also for individuals. But tell me, what do you hope for people that have worked through the book? So my goal for a better country is I hope that Christians will first of all become informed about the global refugee crisis. I think it's really easy when you look at the news to just be really overwhelmed by the different parts of the world in which are experiencing refugee crises, it's very easy to be overwhelmed by that number of 65 million and feel kind of helpless. So I hope that Christians will be informed about the refugee crisis and not just look at it from maybe a political angle or um, just um, a lot of fear that has been projected about the refugee crisis. So I hope that they will encounter the facts. And then secondly, I hope that Christians will look at refugees from a biblical and theological viewpoint. Mm. Um, There are a lot of scriptures that talk about how we treat the stranger, how we are supposed to welcome the stranger. And in fact, the command to welcome the stranger is the second most oft-repeated command in the Hebrew scriptures. So that means it's some it's a topic that's really important and close and dear to the heart of God and so therefore something that we should take very um seriously. And so I hope that Christians will reflect theologically on why we are called to embrace the strangers in our midst. 
And then finally, when we have the knowledge, when we're challenged to think about it theologically, I hope that Christians will act, that they will respond to the needs within their own communities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Your your title is an interesting title, A Better Country, Embracing the Refugee in Our Midst. Are you working with the idea that by embracing the refugee who's here in the midst of our communities, that makes us a better country? So the title, there is um, really a triple meaning, Mm -hmm. a better country. I do hope that the United States can be a better country for um, receiving refugees. I think that refugees are seeking a better country to live Mm -hmm. in. And then thirdly, we as Christians in our Christian identity, you know, we are seeking a better country, a heavenly one. Mm-hmm. And so, on that basis, we can relate to refugees. Mm-hmm. Our longing for heaven, for eternity, that this isn't our home? Is that is that kind of what you Yes, mean? that's right. And, and I think a lot of times we, you know, I definitely think national identity is really important. Patriotism is important. But a lot of times, those identities sometimes supersede our Christian identity. Mm-hmm. And we allow patriotism and nationalism to really um, blind us to the needs of people who don't belong to our nation, people who are newcomers or you know, people that we perceive don't belong to our nation. Mm-hmm. We often take for granted that this land is our land. We take for granted that we're going to live here forever, that we own our house, that we own our things, that we are the masters of our destiny. And, you know, the refugees, many refugees get these things taken away from them in what feels like an instant. Mm. And it really challenges this notion that we have a claim, that we can lay a claim to anything in this life. And so I think that when we embrace the mentality that we are seeking a better country in the same way that refugees are seeking a better country, it helps us to put ourselves in their shoes. It helps us to relate with refugees, um, even the ones that come from cultures and languages and religions that are utterly different from ours. We truly can relate to refugees in that aspect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, it's helpful. I mean, because in a sense, living in America— it's very hard to conceptually think of, you know, grabbing a suitcase and getting on a boat never mm-hmm. to return, right? Right. That's not even in our frame of reference in a, in a sense, for many of us at least. Right. And the interesting thing is, I was talking to a, a woman from Syria. She came over as an immigrant and she helped manage a hospital in Syria. She owned multiple homes. She was wealthy and she left before the worst of the situation in Syria. And she was telling me that her life in Syria was much like my life in the United States. Mm. She said she was just going about doing her thing, living her life very, very comfortably and that she never would have imagined that what happened in Syria happened and that she never would have imagined that her entire life would be kind of taken from her in that way and that there's this perception that, you know, everyone who's coming from Syria is just um, ragged and poor and just running for their lives. And, you know, she says a lot of Syrians are doctors and they're highly educated. And in fact, the Syrian community that's in Houston, um, most of the Syrians who came here prior to maybe two years ago were doctors. She Mm. said that's, 
you know, everyone I know here is like white collar professional, highly educated, lots of degrees. They never would have expected this to happen. Mm-hmm. Wave a magic wand. If you could do anything in terms of the refugee crisis, what do you think would be an answer? I'm going to answer your question from the perspective of someone who's in my shoes, that is living in the United States, and there's all these refugees coming to our city. Um, Houston is the number one resettlement city in the United States. So if I were to wave a magic wand over my city, what I would love to see is that every time a refugee were resettled in our city, that there would be someone is an American citizen who's lived in Houston for a while and kind of knows the ropes, would take that family or that person under their wings and befriend them Mm -hmm. and show them the ropes, um, teach them how to assimilate well into life in Houston, connect them with people, maybe from their country of origin, um, and just be there for them for the long haul. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do, I mean, this is a tough issue. There's, you know, so many biblical passages, very compelling about how we care for people. And yet there remains a fear of if we open the borders, what would happen? Um, Mm -hmm. How do you work with some of those issues from a kind of practical, but also from a spiritual sense? Okay. Um, So on a practical level, I think it's really important that people understand that the United States has never, and I don't really see us ever embracing an open borders policy. I think a lot of people see what's happening in Europe, and they're afraid that's going to happen in the United States. First of all, there's a geographical barrier. (laughs) Um, We are separated by oceans on both sides from where most of the conflict is right now. So on a practical logistical level, I don't really see refugees overflowing our borders at any moment. I mean, we do have people coming through the South, you know, Mexico to Texas. We do have, you know, large numbers there. But then again, it's it's not the same thing as, um, you know, what we see happening in other parts of the world where places like Lebanon, you know, now their population, like a quarter of it is refugees. Um, that's there's really no risk of a quarter of the United States population turning into refugees. Um, I think it's important for people to understand that refugees are the most stringently vetted immigrant group to enter the United States. You know, on those practical levels, there are procedures, there are vetting processes for making sure that the people that we are resettling have been um, security screened. Mm-hmm. Um, Now, on a spiritual level, I think when you talk about welcoming the stranger, again, it's important to remember that we can welcome the stranger. We can relate to the stranger because we once were strangers. You know, um, we, we were opposed to God before Christ and through Christ, you know, Christ breaks down that dividing wall. Um, between us and God, but also between us and man. And um, so as people who are called to reconciliation, as people who are called to care for the least of these, I think that um, we really embrace our true identity as Christians when we welcome the stranger, when we um, minister to the least of these. And like Jesus says, when you do this unto the least of these, you're really doing it unto me. Mm-hmm. So I think that, Um, there's so much of our identity 
that really is wrapped up in welcoming the stranger. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't there a, a piece of fear, not just safety, but then also I'm going to lose a piece of my of the pie if mm-hmm. you know other people are here competing for resources and such. That seems right. to be at the core of a lot of this for people. Is that accurate? Yes. I mean, I, I do think that a lot of people um, tend to view, you know, social services and economic um, prosperity as kind of a zero sum game. Like if someone's doing well, if someone's getting something, then that means someone's that I'm losing something. Hmm. Um, and I, You know, refugees, when they first come over, they do receive some government assistance, but that assistance really um, tapers off after about four months for most refugees. And then it almost completely completely disappears for most refugees after eight months. Mm -hmm. And once refugees get a job, then they're starting to, you know, they have to pay back their um, travel expenses. They get um, a loan. Mm-hmm. from the government and they have to pay it back. And then um, they start working and they start to pay taxes. And so there was a report put out in July 2017 by the Department of Health and Human Services. And they found that over the past decade, refugees have contributed $63 billion more in government revenues than they cost. Wow. So it's not a zero-sum game. It's potentially a profitable game. <laughs> right. <laughs> call it a game. That's not fair, but. Hey, I had a question for you, if I can go more specific with this. Mm-hmm. Um, so you guys had Harvey in Texas and here in Florida, we had a little issue as well. Um, and, and during Irma, Hurricane Irma, um, we, we were without power. And so we left and stayed in a hotel and such. Um, and then our car broke down and we couldn't get mm-hmm. back. And, and so it was a little over two weeks of in a hotel with – a dog, three cats, and two guinea pigs, and um, it was absolutely miserable. Um, and it gave me just just this tiny piece, this insight that I wonder if I could uh, run by you. Is okay. There was a logistical piece, taking care of the family, getting food, place to stay. The logistical piece of looking at long term, you know, where can we go? Who's going to take us in with all our animals? All that logistical stuff. But the piece that surprised me was how unsettled I felt and Mm. how emotionally it just messed with me. I wasn't sleeping. I'm trying to think through all these different plans. I'm trying to take care of others. And it just, um, the emotional toll was huge. Mm -hmm. And I can't even imagine what it would be like for people who are doing this for months or years on end, uh, you know, when they literally have nothing besides what they're carrying. What kind of stress does that cause on individuals when they're uh, displaced? So a lot of refugees do suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, that, you know, emotional toll that it takes on people, I think sometimes is overlooked when we um, choose not to look upon refugees with compassion. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's a lot to adjust to all at once. And, you know, refugees certainly have a a really tall mountain to climb when it comes to recovering, not only a sense of their, um, 
the practical needs that they have, but also their livelihood, their identity, but then also that huge emotional toll. And I think one thing that is lacking in refugee care is that counseling piece. Well, and all the more reason for the church to become involved, right? That not only these people in in need of safety, but then Mm -hmm. also some of these bigger issues through that. Yeah, a need for healing. And that's where I think that the friendships really make a huge difference because it's one thing to have your physical needs met. It's one thing to have your employment needs met needs met. But if you don't have friends, if you don't have a sense that someone cares about you, I think that having all of those physical needs met, just they don't, they're not enough to help someone overcome everything that they have lost. And so I think that friendship piece, um, you know, checking in with refugees over the long haul is really important. And, you know, I know that that means a lot to people that I've spoken to, you know, just sharing that those friendships are the things that really help them. Um, assimilate well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's good. That's really good. And 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 you work with that in your book, right? Ways that we can do this to be yeah. of help to mm-hmm. the refugee in our midst, huh? Yeah, and and I think I want to encourage people who have refugees living in their communities to be aware that there's so much that you can do on a small scale that mean a lot to refugees. Let's say you're interested in welcoming the stranger, but you're thinking, well. I don't really have a lot of time. You know, I have my own family to take care of and I don't have a lot of time to drive refugees all around to their doctor's appointments and whatnot. Well, you can help set up an apartment. You can bring a meal by. You can, you know, help someone learn English an hour or two a week. There's just refugees when they first arrive, they have so many needs and there's just so many different ways that you can meet those needs, even if you only have like an hour or two per month to give. So I would encourage you to um, check in with your local refugee agencies, you know, go online, do some Google researching on which agencies resettle refugees in your community and just ask how you can get involved. Mm, That's good. That's good. Well, I like what you're doing in, I mean, one, I just, I, I love your heart and your compassion and your insight for this, but this, parallel of we are strangers in a strange land Mm. and the importance of welcoming a stranger and the contributions that they bring and the contributions we can bring is simply helping cook a meal, huh? Yes. (laughs) Well, thank you uh, so much, Cindy. Very helpful. Yeah. Thank you, Nathan. Well, there you have it. Again, Cindy's book is titled A Better Country, Embracing the Refugee in Our Midst. And this would be a great book for small groups to work with. She's also co-authored the book Our Global Families, Christians Embracing Common Identity in a Changing World. As always, thanks for listening and have a great week.